Well, tonight uh, we are going to be in the book of Judges. Now, we have uh, we preached, I preached a sermon on the entire book of Judges and then preached a sermon on uh, almost the, just over the first chapter uh, of Judges and then another sermon on the second chapter of Judges. And then tonight we're going to cover four verses. So, <laughs> so we're going to slow it way, way, way down as we get into uh, the, the actual Judges in, uh, in the story. So we're going to be looking at the story of Othniel, and he he is found on page 202 in the Pew Bible in Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and, and the Ashtaroth. Uh, before, uh, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kishon or Rishathaim, uh, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kishon Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel, who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. And so the land had rest for forty years. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to his people tonight. So I was about five years old. My, uh, my uh, dad enrolled me in T-ball, and I was not good at it. And I quit after the first year. So uh, I was actually, the thing I was scared about was uh, outfield. Having that big hard ball flying at your head. I was just like, I'm out. Like I'm just not, this is not for me. For some reason I was like, I'll go play football. But anyway, but uh, uh, I just, I don't need a ball. It's just a person flying at me apparently. So, uh, but, but I did learn how, the basics about how to bat. Right? And it's funny, whenever you learn how to bat, it's always the same thing. You have very strict and specific rules about how your feet have to be spaced, how your knees have to be bent, where your elbows go, where the bat goes, where your head goes. And it, all, and it always starts the same. You train everybody the same. They start off with the base, same basic stance uh, because they have to learn the basics and the fundamentals of, of how to do it. And then as they play and they gain more knowledge and more nuance and more skill and more ability, then they start doing it. Then they start getting those, you know, then you finally get to the pro leagues where they have the goofy looking stances, uh, you know, but they can hit that ball. They're a professional ball player, you know, so they can actually uh, do it. And so, but you have to start with the basics before you move on to the more complex. Same thing with driving. Right, You don't start with like, let's go to the freeway. Right, You're like, that is a gas pedal. (laughs) Like, that is a brake pedal. Learn them well. Don't push them at the same time. You know, make sure you've got the emergency brake down. That smell, that's the emergency brake. You forgot to put it down. You know, that kind of thing. So, uh, and and so, well, Othniel is the basics. He's the basic lesson of the judges, of what the judges are supposed to be. He's kind of boring. Uh, in that sense, there's not a lot of details given. Uh, he is, uh, but he is the basic, uh, the basic, uh, uh, the basic judge, the model judge, uh, after whom all other judges are to be compared to. And in Othniel's story, 
Um, uh, what we're going to see tonight, we're going to see two things in Othniel's story. We're going to see the sin of God's people and then the pity that God has for his people. So first, we're going to look at verse 7 and 8 and see the sins of God's people. And we got the outline in the back of your bulletin as well. Um, and so the sin of God's people, and it's a dual, uh, dual sins here that we are given in verse 7. Uh, the author begins uh, in earnest telling us exactly what the problem is. Israel did what was evil in Yahweh's sight, and that is going to be a constant theme. And we already mentioned previously how, uh, how uh, that it is, at the end of the day, the Lord is the evaluator of human actions, and that he is the one who determines what is evil and what is good. We do not do that. Yet it is interesting how we continue to try to how continuously humanity seeks to say, no, no, Lord, you don't get to define what is good and evil. I get to define what is good and evil. And you're like, this is the Garden of Eden again and again and again, reenacted in the heart of man. Uh, although they say it's you know, more complex, more fancy. And that, it comes down to rebellion. I want to be God. Right? And so Israel wants to determine what is right and wrong, but Yahweh is the one who determines it. And they have done what is evil. And they did what the author said or in chapter 2 was the pattern problem that we'll see come up again and again. They do two things. What was evil in the sight of the Lord, you might ask? Well, first, they forgot Yahweh. And secondly, they worshipped the Baals and the Asherah, which apparently is a plural form of Asherah, and, uh, and, and which is the wife of Baal, so we saw last time. And, and, and so, but what does it mean to forget God? We need to ask ourselves that. What does it mean to forget God? It's not amnesia. It's not like they forgot who he was. It is to know God and then to turn away from that knowledge. It's to disown it, essentially. It's to, uh, it, it's, it's to know what God has done for your people, to know the history, the stories, the miracles, the deliverances, and then act as if they have no meaning, have no bearing, no obligation upon us. And when coupled with the idolatry of worshiping other gods, it becomes a kind of a perverse repentance. Remember, repentance, true repentance, is, is turning from sin unto God. It's a, there's a turning aspect. Uh, it involves, when we talk about the repentance that leads to life, well, that's, that's when one uh, you know, takes hold of God by hating their sin and turning from it and turning to Christ in faith, trusting him to save them in, through the gospel. But here... The reverse is actually happening. The people are turning away from Yahweh. They're turning from him and turning to another God. Uh, a God made of stone and wood who cannot see, taste, touch, uh, smell, move, or speak, uh, let alone save or bless. <coughs> in effect, it is exactly what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. For although they knew God... They did not honor him. Remember, he's talking about people who know God through just creation. He's not talking about Jews, but this is definitely what he's talking about here. They knew God even greater to a greater degree, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts and in, in, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now what is scandalous about Israel doing this 
is not merely the inglorious exchange that Paul describes in Romans 1, but that Israel did this in the face of a clear and known history of grace as well as a history of discipline. Because after all, Israel had been punished before by God uh, over the years. God had consigned an entire generation to, uh, to be laid to waste in the desert because of their rebellion against him and only their children, uh, along with Caleb and, uh, Caleb and Joshua, uh, would be allowed to enter the promised land. And, and, and we ain't made, sitting back, we might almost laugh in astonishment when we stand back and be like, and look at Israel and how they could do this. But we simply have here the testimony of the hardness of the human heart and how prone we are to sin and even sin grievously, even as God's people. I mean, we, we, there's that, you know, that line we love, that we love to sing, and, and, you know, and, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And we sing that, right? Yeah, well, here it is in the book of Judges. You know, so God meets this dual sin of forgetting him and worshiping other gods with dual discipline in verse 8. Now, we have to note here, it's interesting, the Lord's covenant name is used here exclusively to refer to him. His name, Elohim, as the general word for God, is not used in this text, in this section here, but rather his covenant name, Yahweh, is used seven times uh, in this text to refer to him, and there's no other name that is used. And, and so this, when, when the, the covenant name that's all caps of Lord in our Bibles, is, which is his name Yahweh, his personal name, his covenant name that he gives to his covenant people, it's hinting at the covenant background here. It's hinting that this is, a, this is talking about, this, this is, there's, there's the background of the covenant relationship that God has with his people, and that, and that the covenant should be the background of our, as a reader, of our evaluation of Israel. That's how the original audience would have received this writing, would be in the context of, of Israel. And there is one of my professors said, we should always read the Old Testament through the lens of Deuteronomy, which we all do, right? <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but, but that is because Deuteronomy is the book of the law. It is, it, is the, it is the book. I mean, the first five books of the Bible, we call the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah. Uh, but, uh, but it is Deuteronomy that lays out the laws, the covenant laws, the covenant contract, essentially, between God and Israel. And in that, in that, book, in that book, in chapter 8, verses 19 through 20, it says, And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And God is true to his word. His anger burned against Israel, the author says, for their sin. And he sold, he sold them. He handed them over to Cushon, Rishathayim, of Aram, Naharim. You're like, oh, him, right? Cushon, um, Rishathayim means Cushon of double wickedness. That's what Rishathayim means. Uh, which is most likely not the name, his actual name, which is interesting because they don't give us his actual name, uh, but it's likely the name that, was, uh, that they called him behind his back. So, uh, Aram Naharim uh, is, is Aram of Double Rivers and was located around the border of eastern Syria and Iraq. And so you have the king of double wickedness, from the from the from Aram of Double Rivers, and it's interesting that they don't have a name because if you go read like the Book of Ruth, 
And we always we remember that Boaz at the end of that at the end of the story he goes and he redeems um, uh, uh, the line uh, and by marrying Ruth. Uh, but there was that guy, the closer kinsman, who should have done it. Um, and and so, but we're never going to know his name. In Hebrew, his name means Mister So and So. And so, in, in the irony of his actions is that in his effort to, which it's not that he's essentially a bad person, but in his effort to preserve his name, it was lost. He becomes Mister So and So. And, uh, and, and, so, and so also, you know, Mr. King of Mesopotamia, as important as he was, we don't know who he is. We don't know his name. We don't know exactly who he is, in, even in the histories, uh, because his name is not given. He's just the king of double wickedness. So, uh, but, uh, and so Israel served them for eight years. Uh, and, and, and so what is clear here is that God is behind this discipline. Uh, it is his wrath for sin in the life of his people. This is not simply bad luck or poor circumstances. Uh, it's not, it, 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 as Deborah Davis, a pastor scholar, wrote, this is not a teen natural process, but the blazing supernatural wrath that explains Israel's servitude. Yahweh is the God who makes and orders history. There, now, there's always some concern when we speak this way about God's wrath because it can lead people irrationally to just kind of walking around, looking up at the skies, waiting for lightning to strike because they forgot to put their tithe into the church on time. But God does discipline his people. Um, and, 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 note, uh, and note that Israel has, has not simply made a mistake. Israel has not made an oopsie, right? They have abandoned God and they are worshiping other gods and God is getting their attention. And this actually gives us hope, an unlikely hope, in the midst of God's burning anger. Unlikely hope in the midst of God's burning anger. Because, I was thinking about this text, I was thinking about how in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, uh, you know, were told. I mean, Adam was told, and then he apparently told Eve, but apparently wasn't very good at telling Eve because of what Eve thought Adam had said, which she says in uh, Genesis chapter 3. So Adam was a very bad uh, uh, at passing on information, uh, which you're like, and so husbands, that's where we get it, all right? <laughs> so, so, um, uh, but, um, but he said, if you eat of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to die, and, and, and you're going to surely die. In Hebrew, it says you're going to die, die, you're going to doubly die. Okay? And, and and while and while death did come to the world through their rebellion, we note that God mercifully did not strike them dead on the spot. He could have, but he didn't. He showed mercy. Instead, he said he killed animals apparently and covered them with animal skins, which may be the you know apparently the, the first recorded sacrifice that God made for His own people. He showed kindness to them, and we need to note the restraint of God here as He warned the people that they would perish like the nations before them if they forgot Him. Yet when they did forget Him, He did not completely destroy them. He disciplined. What happened was not fun. What happened was not a mild discipline. But God, in his anger, interrupted his people's sinful commitment. He introduced pain in connection with their sin so that they would return to him. It is, it is not, to, it's not it's, so this is not to say, you know, we need to put a nice glossy uh, finish onto eight years of servitude and say it was a good thing. But Israel can be grateful that God should, that he should, that he did show them 
in their wickedness uh, what the results of their sin would be without him. And then he showed them mercy. And so if we run off into sin individually or even as church, you know, may God deal with us in such a way that he interrupts our sinfulness and idolatry, even with pain, that he may introduce to us the opportunity for fresh repentance and faith. C.S. Lewis wrote about this when he said that, essentially in a paraphrasing here, but that at times God will use a megaphone, uh, pain as a megaphone, in order to get our attention. I've often quoted J.I. Packer, who just, I remember reading this in college, it's always stuck with me, where he just, J.I. Packer wrote that sometimes God will break our fingers to get us to let go of our idols and to latch on to Christ. If this, if this were true judgment from God, God would simply do what Paul said God did in Romans 1, which is which we already referenced, which is to give Israel completely over to their lusts, give them completely over to their idolatry, and let their sin destroy them. But he doesn't. He interrupts their sin. He interrupts their self-destruction with his anger, but also with his discipline. And so even in the anger of God, we can find an unlikely hope as we see the fatherly discipline of the Lord interrupting his, uh, the, the sin of his children and, and be, beginning to bring them back to himself. And this brings us to verses 9 through 11 where we consider the pity of God for his people. It's a pity of God because in, in the beginning of verse 9, we have absolute mercy here. It says, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. And, uh, and, and Israelites cried out to Yahweh and God responds. But there's something missing here, and several scholars pointed this out, that there is no indication of actual repentance here. They simply cried out to, to God. They cry out, to be sure, they cry out specifically to Yahweh. But they, it doesn't say they worshipped him, doesn't say they repented of what they did, doesn't say they smashed their Baal and Asherah statues. And so it's, it, it, it's a, um, they are in pain, and so they, in their desperation, they turn to Yahweh and cry out to him, because if anything they remember is Yahweh helped us out before. And God's actions here are motivated apparently purely from his pity. His pity of, of simply not being able to stand uh, suffering for the people he loves, that he has covenanted himself to. And so he doesn't, uh, he doesn't deliver them because they've had a change of heart. He delivers them because he is moved by their suffering. We see something similar later on in the book of Hosea, after Israel has been, uh, been sent into exile. And... Uh, and um, and, and, and talking about picturing Israel as a, as a adulterous, unrepentant uh, uh, wife um, who's being punished. The Lord says in that book that his, that, that his heart, his insides churn, that his heart, oh, it's just turned within me, his compassion burns, and that, and that he will restore his people, he will bring them back. The deliverance that God brings through Othniel then is one of pure mercy. It is unwarranted, unwarranted, it is unearned, it is undeserved. 
And so this highlights uh, the reality that, that God is many things at once. That God is uh, holy. He is also just and wrathful for sin. He hates sin and his people. But he is also the covenant-keeping, covenant-loving, persevering God who truly cares for his people even when they sin against him and even when their own repentance is lacking in the moment. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care if we repent or that we don't need to repent. As Paul wrote in the book of Romans, his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. To a people unworthy of deliverance, God brings forth a judge who will bring about, in verses 9 and 10, the rest of the, at least the rest of verse 9 and verse 10, what we can only call a charismatic uh, deliverance. Now, um, to say that Othniel was uh, charismatic or that he had charisma is not to say that he was charming, uh, but that, as the text says, he had the spirit of Yahweh upon him. Now, we have heard about Othniel before, uh, that he was in chapter 1, we were told about him. He's the nephew of Caleb, uh, who had already demonstrated his prowess in combat. Uh, he uh, had made holy war. He had married and then settled in the land. His wife was shown to be wise and procured springs of water for their familyhood and or their livelihood. And, and now, what is odd about Othniel, though, is that he is not a native Israelite. He is apparently a Kenite from the line of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who came and joined and were apparently absorbed into the tribe of Judah when they came into the land. But here is, uh, you know, a, a technically non-Israelite pictured as the, the, as the poster Israelite of what the Israelites were supposed to do. Be faithful in war, take the land, and settle in it. This is what Othniel did. And, uh, and, so, and so here's this upstanding, essentially citizen, uh, who, uh, who, is, who is empowered by God to bring about a great deliverance for the people of God. There's nothing, there's, I mean, we're, again, we're not given any details about what he did. We're just told that, that he did it and that the Lord caused it. Now, it's interesting because prior to Joshua, the Spirit of Yahweh had empowered uh, people in a variety of ways. But it's kind of, it's, it's, at the, it's at the coming of Joshua and then the judges and then David and Saul that we start seeing these individual moments where the Holy Spirit empowers individual people to accomplish particular military, uh, incredible military feats. Um, and I mean, we'll get to, like, for instance, we'll get to Samson later, but, you know, Samson, whenever the, he's pictured, he's like this big, like, you know, muscle, you know, bodybuilder, whenever people picture him. But the reality is apparently, and I want to do some research on this, but also, but it seems like the reality is, is that he had unexpected strength. So actually, Samson may not have been this big, burly, muscle-bound, you know, guy, because it, there's no muscle-bound guy that's going to rip off gates of a city. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter how many muscles you got, buddy. Like, you can't do that unless the Lord is going to empower you and strengthen you. And because uh, and, if it looks like you should be able to do that, then nobody would be going, hey, why can you do that? You know, like, that's what they kept doing. It's like, how is this guy doing this stuff? Because the Lord empowered them specifically and miraculously and momentarily to accomplish these temporary, momentary deliverances for his people. 
And uh, now, um, and also we often forget that the Holy Spirit operated differently in the Old Testament than he does um, after the Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost uh, as, as the Holy Spirit filled the church. Um, and so, but the most important thing we need to understand about Othniel is that we're told that he judged Israel. But what did it mean for him to judge Israel? And we're told in that verse that he was a deliverer to save the Lord's people. That's what a judge did. That was the primary, that is the primary work that is, that is covered for us in the book of Judges. They had a judicial capacity to be sure, but, we'll all, but what we get are the deliverances, uh, that these judges are deliverers, they are saviors for the people of Israel. We're told that Othniel um, went out to battle, um, as I said a moment ago, that uh, it was you know, just as Yahweh had sold Israel into the power of the enemy, so now Yahweh hands over Kishon, Rishathayim, the king of double evil, into Othniel's hand. Othniel is a deliverer to save the people of God from the king of double wickedness. Very quickly we can see, begin to see here the parallels of, that begin to point to Christ, who as the angel declared at his birth had come to save his people, to be a deliverer. In his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, empowering him in his ministry to accomplish the deliverance plan for the people of God by his Father. And let us recall that at that time, the covenant with Moses is still in effect when Jesus is operating in his ministry. The new covenant is not brought into effect until Jesus dies and is brought back to life and then brings the Holy and ascends into heaven and sends the Holy Spirit. Between his crucifixion and Acts chapter 2 is when the new covenant is coming into effect. But until then, but until then, that's not unusual. I mean, uh, the, the covenant with Abraham stretches from Genesis 12, 15, and 17. <laughs> so, so you have multiple chapters where covenants are coming into effect. Well, Jesus is operating in the Gospels under the covenant of Moses. And, here, and he fulfills it as a deliverer for the people of God, the ultimate judge to come. And, and, and so not only his life, but, but Christ is put forward to us again and again. Uh, as a, as as a, the example for us to follow. Now, if whenever whenever you start hearing about people talking about, oh, we need to follow the example of Jesus, there's there's a very um, unhelpful way to do it um, because a lot of times that teaching has been warped in churches to say, oh, we need to follow the example of Jesus. And what they mean is is that we need to be all loving and never condemning and always accepting and always inclusive and never exclusive and. And they'll, and they'll say, yeah, you know, go read the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and for me, I'm like, I don't think you've read the Sermon on the Mount. Um, because even if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you'd find out that Jesus is very exclusive in, the, in his wording about things and very strong in his language about things and very particular about things. That he's very concerned, for instance, how people pray and fast. There's a right way to pray, he says. There's a right way to fast, he says. You know, there's like there's wrong ways to do things. And so Jesus is very exclusive, even in certain sections. Um, but... Um, uh, but the example that we are given, um, uh, not only of obedience uh, to the Father uh, in Christ, but is also faithfulness, particularly in suffering. That is, the, that is the thing that is brought up again and again. And we talk about the example of Christ. And the Testament letters call us to follow the example of Christ. I mean, Peter is all about this. It's just that multiple times that he is, that specifically, to suffer 
while doing good is the example of Christ that he has set for us to follow in. And uh, a lot of people just want to be like, well, I want to do the flip tables thing. Can I follow that example? <laughs> you know, and Peter's like, I didn't say that one. All right? But sometimes, sometimes you got to flip some tables, but, uh, but more often it is to suffer while doing good. But this should, we should always understand, uh, it, uh, but we should always understand uh, these things in terms of the deliverance that Christ brings to us. It's the deliverance that Christ brings to us is undeserved. It's one that we are not worthy of. It's one that honestly is, is not of our own making. It's not even at times of our own desiring. But it is the deliverance that God has brought for us. And God in his kindness wakes us up, sometimes through pain, wakes us up to our need. And he points us to our great deliverer, Jesus Christ, in whose name we trust and whose image we are being conformed to in our daily life. And this brings us to verse 11. Where the, where the people are brought into what we can call an undeserved rest. Their servitude was eight years, but they were brought to rest for 40. The goodness and pity of God, you know, never underestimate the pity of God for his people and his kindness to his people, who though they, they rebelled against him and did great wickedness and he brought upon them eight years of servitude, he blessed them with 40 years of peace. It was a rest for that generation that had lost its way and found deliverance in the hand of Yahweh. Now, uh, when we talk about rest, we should understand it in two ways. Uh, first, there is truly rest for us now when we walk by faith in Christ, even in the midst of sorrows and suffering and afflictions and difficulties. There is rest for our souls today in him. There is blessing in obeying the Lord by the grace of the Holy Spirit. But we should also bear in mind that all, even these momentary blessed periods of rest point to that greater rest that awaits us in the kingdom of God. The rest that Christ has secured for us. That he has already begun to partake of in our, in, in that he is the guarantee of for his people. Because as Othniel pictures here, as the model judge, the deliverer not only saves, but he brings rest to the people of God. That is the model, and Jesus is the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate judge who brings rest for his own. And so we have here tonight the basic framework of the model of judges, and, uh, and we'll probably be making reference to it as we go through, as we look at uh, Ehud, the uh, the left-handed deliverer um, next uh, next uh, next week uh, with his um, uh, very different and interesting model of deliverance uh, that he will bring, and uh, but the judges uh, they're going to they're they're going to follow this pattern and divert from it in a lot of and uh, in, in varying ways and varying degrees, but regardless, we Othniel here and and those who shall come later will point always to our deliverer who is Christ, the one who has delivered us, we who have walked in our own foolish sinfulness, who have worshipped the creature rather than the creator. But Christ has come. He has delivered us. And so let us then, in true repentance, turn to him, trust him, receive his mercy, and follow him in his holy way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the story of Othniel, for the pattern that he sets,
to help us understand what a judge should be. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the true deliverer who saves his people, the ultimate deliverer. We thank you, Lord, for we are not worthy of the deliverance he has brought us. Father, we are worthy of judgment. We are worthy of hell. But you in Christ have made us worthy of heaven because of his worthiness, because of his righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless and help us, Father. In any ways that we are wayward and sinful, where we are beginning to step off the path of the narrow way, and you turn our foot back onto steady ground. And Lord, we pray that if we, if we should find ourselves way off the path, if we should find ourselves committing ourselves to a life of sin, forgetting you and, and turning away and worshiping the creature rather than the creator, Lord, we pray that you would wake us up even through pain. For momentary pain is, is better than eternal loss. And so, Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes Search us, reveal to us any way that is grievous to you. And as David said, lead us then in your everlasting way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.